so welcome. So we've been following along with Jesus and uh, listening to his, his great proclamation. Jesus claimed to be king. That was his central claim. I am the king, not just of Israel, but of the universe. And his followers, those people who lived day in and day out with him, attested to that. That um, he was, they, they spent their lives, their, three whole years of their lives, following Jesus around, watching him do and say amazing things. And uh, this is kind of what they ended up saying. I've, I've kind of taken the New Testament witness from his followers, what, what, their own testimony about what it was like to be around Jesus, and kind of condensed it into this paragraph. To know him is to know truth, to know grace. To know him is worth more than anything else that you're searching for. He makes sense of your suffering. To understand the power of his resurrection and and what happened when he rose from the dead, he helps us uh, guide us even through life and death. I mean, and and I didn't put this in in the paragraph, but because it's almost hard to give words to you, but they said it's like finding the spouse Jesus was, talked about himself as the bridegroom, the groom. It's like finding the spouse that you've always dreamed about and feeling this, this, having this deep sense of completion in Jesus. And we've been talking about how the Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and created an experience like this for his followers is the same Jesus who's alive today in heaven who's alive today in our midst, and who's alive today very close to us, and to have a relationship with this guy is still possible. And that's part of the reason why we're, why we're doing this thing. And so we talked about Jesus and about this testimony from his followers, and we've talked about Jesus in his first century setting, all the players, Pontius Pilate, uh, the chief priests who represent the Jewish leadership, and Jesus. To understand him, you've got to kind of get into this whole setting, you got to understand him in his context. And when you do, he's so much more than a good religious teacher. We find out what his claim to kingship actually means. It's like, and, and so what we learned is during his public ministry, it was far more like a political candidate going around on campaigning than it was a guru going around and teaching timeless truths. That's what it would have felt like to be in that setting. When he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying like, I'm standing on the platform. There's Caesar. There's Herod. I'm the king now. And this is a wild thing to say in the, in the face of, of uh, politicians and uh, other, other candidates who wanted to, to claim their rights. And so this is, this is the Jesus uh, that we have. Now, I, I was Googled online this week the longest blooming flower. And what I meant by that was what plants out there take the longest to actually come into bloom? And I found this plant. These botanists out there will have a field day with me afterwards. It's called Puya Rayamondi. It's the queen of the Andes, is the name of how it translates. Uh, and it's uh, found in Bolivia and Peru, down in South America. Now, the thing about this plant is that they estimate that it takes about 40 years for it to, to bloom. And once it blooms, very shortly after that, it dies. You think about this amazing creation, this amazing little piece of God's creation. 
and what it must be like to plant one of these in your home or wherever, in Bolivia, wherever you plant these, and to wait for 40 years, once in, once in a lifetime, really. You can, you know, twice if you're lucky to see this thing bloom. And I, I, I've gone into this, this sort of mind, mind uh, exercise because when Jesus came announcing his, the God's kingdom, it was as if God's kingdom was blooming again in a, in a thousand years. It's taken, God's kingdom was in bloom. King David was on the throne. Everything was sort of going in the right trajectory. And that's when God's kingdom was blooming for the first time. And it hadn't bloomed for, and it sort of had the slow death cycle over the course of 500 years until the other, other kingdoms came and destroyed. It was like Jesus was saying, Think of how wild this is. Jesus was saying, in him, God's kingdom was coming for the first time, blooming for the first time in a thousand years. That was his message. He, and, and to have this message, to give this message, he had to kind of back that up, right? You walk around as a political candidate and say, I'm doing something for the first time in a thousand years. You're going to have to back that up. And so he did. He backed it up with all sorts of healings, all sorts of miracles that he went. And that's what we're going to spend the next four weeks on, is this, this sense of his healings. Not, not necessarily his miracles per se, but his healings more specifically. These are the things he was doing to demonstrate, I'm for real here. I have, I have, I'm not just making a wild claim. I've got authority to back it up. And so, you know, he's, he's proclaiming God's kingdom coming for the first time in a thousand years. If you missed that sermon... It's on the podcast. You can go online and, and find that uh, where, where he proclaims his, his candidacy. Um, and then we've been, asking, we've been asking this question recently about how Jesus asks us to use our money, not to waste it, but to learn to use our money, our status, our privilege and power powerfully with pure hearts to help establish his reign on earth. Well, unless he had something to back this up, how many of us are going to fully give our, our allegiance to him? And that's the thing. That's the thing that we're after here, allegiance. You know, Jesus loved his own Jewish tradition and scriptures, and he was asking for allegiance. And we're not, we're not surprised, or we shouldn't be surprised when that begins to kind of disturb us. It disturbed them. It disturbed his, his, first, his, his contemporaries. And it disturbs us, too, because he's saying stuff like, we need to be totally dependent upon God fully transparent with our shortcomings. We're hiding our shortcomings away. We're, we're, we, feel, we need to feel deeply at home in reliance on God, relying on him fully for everything. These are difficult things for us, just as it was for them, and especially as we get into the use of our money. But we see that he comes as king and asks to give us allegiance. But his kingdom isn't like other kings. This is, this is more of what he means when he says, I am king, than a gilded ruler sitting on a throne making power claims. My kingdom is like, I have no place to lay my head. I am among the least and the lost. Because my kingdom's not about power or authority or misuse of power. My kingdom's about redeeming the whole thing. Bringing places that are filled with injustice and poverty out. Um, 
allegiance to Jesus is like being freed from many things, right? That hold us captive. Unforgiveness, greed, self-hatred, deep sadness. Whatever it is that grips your life, grips my life, allegiance to Jesus is coming out of that, to be healed from that. So that's, that's why we're following this guy. That's why, that's why we end up giving our whole lives to this guy. Because he's saying, in my rulership, in my kingship, I'm going to undo in a very covert way all the things which oppress the world. So we're in, into healing. We'll get, we'll get into this story next week. You remember this story where some folks bring Jesus, Jesus, a paralytic, someone who couldn't walk, lower him down through the roof, and Jesus heals him. Also, there's all sorts of things Jesus did. Here's, here's the list, the big list. I read all, all four Gospels this week looking for all of his healings. Here's what he does. He, he cures people from demon possession. Now, that's a bit of a different thing than we normally talk about today in this day and age. Demon possession. When, when we think about demon possession, the things that, um, the things that it uh, looks like today, that it looked like then, was kind of mania, what's the word? manical behavior, uh, severe uh, mental illness. Severe acting out, people walking down the streets. Now, I think as Christians, we, we follow Jesus and we say, there's a spiritual world that we cannot see at play in all of our brokenness and all of our, and all of our issues. Uh, but, but think of Jesus coming up to someone today having severe mental illness on the streets, walking up and saying, be freed. And all of a sudden, they're calm. And it's as if their mental illness isn't even a factor. So he goes around doing that kind of thing to prove his kingship. He cures various sicknesses. Fever, dropsy, leprosy are the ones named. A different, I don't know. I, had to look that, I forgot to look that up. Dropsy. Does anyone know what dropsy is? I'll find that out for next week. Shaking? Okay. I'll look that up for next week. He heals this. He, he, um, he, he, these are the ones named. But in various places in the Gospels, it just says he, people brought him people with various sicknesses and he healed them. Uh, various bodily compromises, blindness, being crippled, inability to speak, ulcers, inability to hear, withered hands, personal and emotional. He healed people from destructive impulses, unwise and destructive lifestyles, people who are fleeing themselves headlong into destructive decisions and lifestyles. He heals them from, brings them out of. Deep cycles of unforgiveness and the consequences of living under the weight of not being able to forgive someone or to forgive yourself. Jesus comes and he lifts that burden and he brings in forgiveness. And that's actually what we're going to talk about for the rest of the day today, this type of healing. But he also heals social rejection, people who are outcasts, not able to be in a normal relational context, functioning well as a human being. He heals that. And he raises at least three people from the dead. So this is what he goes around doing to say, I'm not just making this up. For the first time in a thousand years, God's kingdom is back and I'm, I'm the king. Um, and, and, and here's what we know. Just another little tidbit of historical information that we know that Jesus had a large following. People followed him wherever he went. When he came into your town, everything stopped. He goes to the CLE or wherever. I can't do that anymore. Uh, he, goes, he goes somewhere where lots of people can gather. Everyone flocks in, so it's like you have no room to move even. And Jesus begins healing all the people around. 
So we know that there's a large crowd that always followed him. And we also, we also get a sense that that was his, that was his claim. Why, why are crowds following you, Jesus? We get a sense that's how he would respond. Well, because I'm, I'm healing people. I'm announcing that God's kingdom is finally here. All brokenness will be undone. And his, his enemies, or the people who are against him, accused him of being in league with Satan. They saw all the healings, and the only thing they could figure out was that Satan must be in charge of this. How else could he have so much power? If you get accused that Satan is working through you, you're up to some stuff. Like, you're doing, you're doing some out-of-this-mind stuff. So we know that Jesus, Jesus was a healer, and we see that Christianity, at its very beginning, is a healing tradition. And we lose, we've lost sight of this, I think, in the church a lot. We're a healing tradition after Jesus. But then we have all sorts of questions, don't we? It's unavoidable. Christianity is a healing tradition. Jesus was a healer. But then we have all sorts of questions, natural questions, which arise. What kind of God acts that way? We're just sort of zap, that person's healed, but here, line up of ten more who aren't. What kind of God would do that? Why are we, why are we not always healed. Sometimes we're not healed. Sometimes we pray and we pray and pray and it doesn't happen. Why? Why is there still death if Jesus 2,000 years ago was saying what he was saying? Why don't we see miracles and healings more? Is it that we lack faith? All of these are important and live questions and I hope to get to all of them in the next four weeks. Uh, but that's, it's just, I'm just bringing this out for us. Christianity is a healing tradition, no doubt. But then we have the questions that, that follow. So we're going to begin today. We're going to begin exploring this, diving into, diving into some of Jesus' teaching on healing. And we're going to do this in, uh, today with, with Luke 15. These are the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. We're going to dive in asking ourselves about Jesus' healing ministry. We might not think immediately to go here. But we see from this teaching, that this will stretch across all four sermons, that healing is deeply connected with forgiveness. Healing and forgiveness are always linked in Jesus' teaching. And it's not that if you want to get healed, you've got to forgive someone, or if you want to get healed, you've got to ask you know, grovel on your knees before God for forgiveness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some deeper, rich connection between brokenness, sinfulness, and healing, which Jesus is constantly after. So I'll unpack this for us. I know I'm not making full sense, but stay with me. We're going to get into all this. So we'll begin by just reading Luke 15. I'm going to read it out for you here. I'm going to invite you to, it takes a little bit of time to read it. It's not, not a short chapter. I just invite you to sit back and listen. I didn't put the words up there. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Just, just listen. Just take it in. The stuff was meant to be heard anyway instead of read. So we'll, we'll, we'll recover some of that. The parable, there's three parables. It says Jesus, um, Jesus was teaching, and there was tax collectors and sinners who gathered near him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses just, just one of them. 
Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels. In the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a young man who had two sons, or there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Powerful story. One of Jesus is one of his most powerful stories about who he is and what he's come to do, what his kingship is like. I love this picture because I believe this is a Rembrandt. Uh, this picture because as God the Father in this parable, as God the Father reaches his hands over the prodigal to receive him home, you are not a slave. You're my child. One hand is a father's. Hands are different sizes. You see. One hand is a father's hand, strong and wide, and the other hand's a mother's hand. This captures God's characteristics. He's like the best father and the best mother that we could ever have, all in one. That's how he receives us. Now, we're we're dealing here in these stories, especially with the parable of the prodigal son, we're dealing with the deep brokenness that Jesus heals in us when we finally give up unforgiveness with ourselves or with other people. This is what this is about. This is about unforgiveness. And um, when we ask about this, when we talk about the connection between sin and brokenness and forgiveness, we have to ask these questions. Apparently, apparently says the the parable, you know, this repentance, right? I've sinned against heaven and you. Apparently, we're dealing with sinners in the hands of God. Okay, what does this mean? What is sin? What is what? But what God? What kind of hands are we in? What, what does this have to do with our brokenness that we experience day in and day, in day out? So I'm gonna just teach you for a minute. Do some teaching. Sin and brokenness. The story gives us sin and brokenness like this: wild living. The son went in and, and did some wild living. I don't think I have to spell that out for many of us. What that looks like: wild living. It looks like reaching places of deep emptiness, deep hollowness. This wild living leads to deep, deep hollowness and brokenness. And this, it all begins with this impulsive viciousness. That's what, that's what he was doing. Father, give me half of what you have. In our culture today, it wouldn't be taken as so. But in that day and age, that would have been hostile, viciousness. I wish you were dead. So the father says, here's your half. And a little while later, off he goes into this wild living. If you, if you take a, a wider perspective of sin, you get two things. You get this de- description of what a sinful life looks like. It's your mind is set firmly on your desires. You're consumed by things of death. You're hostile to God. You've got your, your fists up when, you, when anyone talks about making peace with God. You cannot please God, the scriptures say, in that manner. You're into sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, um, dissensions. <laughs> Scientists out there, you're absolved. Factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, etc. Okay, you get the point, past my grammatical mistakes. Um, 
If the, the New Testament doesn't leave much to be imagined, it just spells it out, what sinful behavior looks like. Now, we're, we're usually taught that that's where it begins and ends. You're sinful, you do these things, you need, to, you need to come home. But there's another whole factor here at play, and we have to know this as Christians. It's biblical teaching. Um, Paul, Paul says it like this. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Somehow sin in Paul's teaching takes on a little bigger, a little bigger definition than just the things we do. It's almost like a power that's hovering out there. It says, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For sin shall no longer be your master. Yeah, we're, we are easy to do all these things. Humans fall into these traps all the time. But it's also as if, if you add up all of our sinful behavior, somehow it gets bigger than the sum of all of its parts. That's evil. That's what we call evil. That somehow there's a power of sin and death that's out there like a slave owner forcing us, whipping us, soaking us up to do things that we don't want to do, preventing us from doing the things that we want to do. This is Paul's gospel, right? So somehow in this interaction, it's we are, human beings can be enslaved, addicted to something larger than us that causes us to fall into sin over and over again. And somehow when that happens, when that force works upon us, we do all sorts of things. And the opposite of that looks like this. Being children of God. Right? The story is about being a child of God. Not slaves to fear, but, but here, here's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. All of, all of these things describe what it means to be freed into a whole life. And when Jesus is going around talking about healing, he's not just curing fevers. He's out to get to the root of the problem. So many of us need deep healing. Deep healing, because unless we have deep healing, it's almost as if if people can sort of cure the behaviors, or if we can force ourselves not to do behaviors, it's almost as if we haven't really reached the cause, and we haven't been freed from the power of sin. And so Jesus comes. Jesus comes as king, and he dies, of course, to free us from the powers of sin and death, to give us redemption, and to bring us into this type of healing, away from this brokenness and sin, into this goodness, kindness, gentleness, love, deep sense that we are children of God. That's the type of healing that we're talking about today. Christ paves the way for us to come home. Now, there's one essential piece of this. Like, you can't ignore this in this, in this, piece, in this story. Repentance. What is repentance? How is repentance key to healing? If, 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 if this is resonating with you, if you're going today, some of those things hit me at the heart of my brokenness. Stuff I know I need to be healed deeply from. Repentance is a huge factor in this. And this, this, what does this look like? This looks like a, the prodigal son, the prodigal child coming home and being willing to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
And repentance, repentance is not easy. And this, is, and this is why Jesus is offensive. He's asking us to be willing to be totally vulnerable with all of our weakness and to give it to God. I, I, I want to be healed and whole. I'm, I, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. I've done wrong by you. I've, I've, instead of pushing back the powers of sin and death, I've been complicit in allowing them to reign further on this earth. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Repentance, the willingness to bring ourselves in humility and openness to God. Here's the thing, though. When we hear someone to say, it's time for you to repent, come to God to be healed from deep levels of unforgiveness. We kind of think it's like, are you asking me to kind of grovel? What about my dignity? What about my self-dignity? Where does that play in? And we think that repentance is like slavery and loss of dignity. It's like, am I supposed to come back and just grovel at the feet of this God who can't quite control himself with his anger towards me? That's what we think of when we're invited into repentance, right? And that's what the son thought as well. I will set back, he was in a far country, slapped his father in the face, left, and is now in deep distress. I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Don't we just take that mindset on over and over again? If deep inside of our heart we know that we've been far from God, Deep inside of ourselves, we know that we've been complicit in the powers of sin and death. And it's just hovering over us, and we do everything to justify it. But deep in the inner core, we know that there's really nothing to justify how we've been behaving. I'm talking, I'm talking together here. I'm not talking about you and Pastor Pierre Keith. I'm talking about deep in our hearts knowing that we've got something that we're holding on to, and we can't let it go. And it's, it's poisoning our hearts. And we think like this, higher, this, this son, well, if I go back, if I let go of what I'm holding on to, I'm going to lose my dignity and just be like a slave, one of his hired servants. But that's not how the story goes, is, is it? It's not how, that's not how the father acts. And that's why repentance, here's what repentance is like with a shepherd king. You remember he started off by saying, think of a shepherd who's got 100 sheep and loses one, but the 99 are in a vulnerable place. Isn't that shepherd going to go and retrieve the one? And we go, no. It's going to stay there with the 99 and let the other one die. Maybe there'll just like some babies in the spring and it'll be, it'll be all good. That's not, that's, that's not the type of God Jesus knows to be God. God says, I will leave. I will leave everything to come and find you, to put my shepherd's hook around you and to bring you home. And here's what repentance looked like as, with a shepherd king. We're coming home scared, but God sees us from far, far off and he runs towards us with compassion, throws his arms around us, kisses us, puts a ring on us, puts sandals on our feet. Get this? Do you get this? From head to toe, everything about us, our whole selves, he's putting his, the dignity back upon he puts his best robes on us. He kills the fattened calf. I, I just racked my brain going, what's the modern day equivalent? I couldn't think of one. If you think of one, let me know. He killed the fattened calf. I mean, the livelihood of, of, of the whole farm depended upon this thing. 
There's feasts, there's celebration, and dancing. And the thing about dancing here is you know what kind of dancing it was because we know there was dancing because the older brother from outside heard it from outside. He said he heard the, the, the dancing. That's the level of celebration we're talking about that the shepherd king has when one sinner repents. Father, I, I, I've got no excuse. I'm coming to you now in, in, in repentance. And in washes from this king, not this king, not this God who's like, I can't quite control myself. I, I'm so angry with you. Ooh, it's just like, okay, you can be my slave. No, it's complete opposite. My child, what was dead? You were dead, and now you're alive. Okay? This is repentance. Repentance is coming home to our need of God. How many of us struggle with just knowing how deeply we need God? We need God deeply in our lives to be whole and healthy people. It's like coming home to that. We don't have to hold on to our dignity with our teeth clenched. It's not what this is about. This is not slavery. It's more like coming home than a constant hit. Now, let me just unpack that for a minute. A lot of Christians, a lot of people who are people of faith, adopt this pattern of repentance. Okay, I'm in a bad behavior. I did it again. God, please forgive me. It's like they've taken a hit of drugs of some sort. Oh, grace, forgiveness. And they're back at it the next day. Oh, I messed up again. I need God. God, I'm sorry. Okay, I got that grace hit from my syringe or whatever. So this, the, the life of faith and repentance doesn't look like that in case you're caught in that cycle. It's far more like coming home, like embracing our need, neediness in God, but not wallowing in our guilt. It's like coming home to the Father. I mean, here's the thing. We, we oftentimes in our sinful behaviors are often a distant land, spending everything we have investing in something we know is destructive. And all the while, our Father's home is open to us. It's constantly producing, never out. We're starving in our brokenness, and yet his land is producing richly. It's like leaving a really bad land, landlord and coming back to live in God's place, in God's home. That's what, that's what forgiveness and repentance is like. We don't get lost in this cycle of sin and grace and sin and grace. And it's not like that. It's far more like being freed from our brokenness so that we can, and, and rejoiced over so that we can live a full life where, where we are uh, being redeemed and restored and, made, and made, that, made so that the addictions are no longer addictions. That's what this is like. It's hard to give words to. I've, I've, I've spent many years in this, this guilt cycle. Oh, I'm awful. Forgive me, God. Oh, I'm such a great guy. I've got this. Back in that pit. There, there's, that's a guilt cycle. It's just not, that's not Christianity. Christianity is coming home and acting like God's children once again. Okay? I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's what repentance looks like. Confession, repentance. We can do this to God. We can do this to one another and help each other in this. I don't know how many people like sitting around in confession circles. I don't. <laughs> but you can confess your sins to other people, and it's a Christian practice. 
I've sinned against. So let's repent. Healing, deep healing from the things, especially levels of unforgiveness, needs repentance. It, all the stuff that we hide away, that is like poison in our soul, needs to come out, come to God in dependence, and we need to come home. One last thing. The older brother, it's such an interesting story, part of the story. The older brother hears that there's a celebration, knows that it's about his brother coming home, and is filled with what? Resentment, right? This is a very powerful part of the story. So many people, especially people of faith, can begin acting like the sinners out there are despicable failures. We can see, we can see not just people who are far from God and far from the church as despicable failures, but we can begin looking around and thinking, anyone less than us, anyone that's not as holy as me, is a despicable failure. And here's the feeling. If this person is given a place in the family, this resentment can just rise up like no other. It's insidious. It's part of Christian community that needs to be weeded out. When people are, that are, who are far from God or not as holy as us come into places of family, there's no place for resentment. No place whatsoever. And this is Jesus' way. This is what he's saying. Remember at the beginning, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I love that. I love that Jesus was attracting sinners, people who were far from God, who were just curious. They wanted to be around him and get healed. And Jesus was like, this is what this is about. That's why I'm here. And you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And, and in the parable, of course, Jesus says, these are the older, older brothers here, older siblings saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And we get this anger, and I've been working, I've been slaving away, working for you, God. And you're just going to let this person have a place in the family? Anger, resentment. Jesus, Jesus will say, in my community, in my way, there's no room for that. And um, I love that. I love that that's the movement I'm a part of. Because um, what, what does that mean? It means those of us who have been slaving away for decades at this faith thing, we have the presence of God. He, we have, everything that is his is ours. And the only proper response when someone far from God is part, becomes part of the family again, the only proper response is dancing that could be heard miles away. Let's do that. Let's, let's, let's be a community who does that. And um, I just... I, 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 I dream about what that looks like. And I think that all the seeds of that are here. We've, we have so, uh, so much of this already. But let's grow in this. I think we've got some room to grow in this, to, um, to learn how to dance wildly and to, to rejoice when others that we see as less holy than us are part of the family. I don't know what that looks like for you, but um, I think that there's two things, two takeaways here. First of all, cycles of unforgiveness. Are you caught in cycles of unforgiveness? Here's how this goes. Does somebody owe you something? Or do you owe somebody something? 
That's what unforgiveness is about. Someone owes you something, and they haven't paid you. And this, this is most tangible in the sort of economic sense. Has someone borrowed something from you, and they're just, they just can't get their life together to give it back? Unforgiveness is, you don't owe me that anymore. You don't no longer owe me that debt. But this goes far deeper into relationships. And this is where I think most of this poison gets in our system as, as human beings. Does, was your father never a father to you? Does that, does that human being owe you a father? Is your spouse, not the spouse that you'd hope that they'd, they'd be, do they owe you a spouse? Forgiveness is saying, you don't owe me a father anymore. You don't owe me a spouse anymore. Relationally, I spent my life investing in this relationship, decades perhaps, and the relationship explodes and it's because of some sort of brokenness. And this person took 10 years of your life away from you. Forgiveness is, you don't owe me those 10 years anymore. I'm not sure what this is for you or how you deal with this. I believe we all do to a certain de- degree. But if, but if we hold on to unforgiveness for too long, it becomes poison in our hearts. It becomes something that tears us apart from the inside. And the Jesus that I know and the Jesus that went around 2,000 years ago, a huge part of his ministry was to help us here, to say, you don't have to hold on to those debts. And once you say, you no longer owe me what you owe me, a great healing can begin in your life. I think a lot of physical ailments, a lot of emotional and, uh, and psychological ailments can stem back to unforgiveness. You're holding on to something that you just need to let go and you'll have perhaps a good sleep. Or about yourself. Can you, can you not forgive yourself for something you've done? This is, this is where it comes back to the prodigal son. All you need to do is to come to the throne of God and say, I have sinned against you. Bring me back into your family. You can do that this morning if you need to. You do that right now in this place. You can let go of that unforgiveness and resentment. Do you find yourself slipping into the older brother mentality? Do you resent people because they seem to, they seem to be getting a free pass when you spent years and years of your life working for God? Um, that's another thing that we need to bring to the throne of God and give up. So... Um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to myself here today this morning as much as I am you. We're in this together. We're in this Christian family thing together. And if we, if we want to understand the wide... I mean, we'll, get into the, we'll get into healing and healing of diseases and brokenness and raising from the dead. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. But just this week, the, the, the ailments that we have that deal with unforgiveness, where is this in your life? I invite you this morning. It's never too early to give this stuff to God, to do some repenting, to do some looking your family in the eye and asking for forgiveness. Never too early. You could do that today. Um, but we, 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 we don't come to this vulnerable and in the, in the hands of a God who can't quite control himself with his anger. We come to a God who's far more like a good shepherd who will run after us and 
cover us from head to toe with love, bringing us back into his family. And Jesus reminds us and invites us every week to come to his table of brokenness, where bread is broken in pieces, represented the way his body was broken for us, where the, the juice here is representing his blood which was poured for us. We can only go here because he died and, and defeated the powers of sin and death. Um, but I would invite you this morning, whatever it is you need to repent of, whatever it is you need forgiveness for or to be forgiven for, whatever levels of resentment you have experienced in your own walk, now is a perfect time to come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, take Jesus' body and blood into you and become part of his family once again. If you've been far from God and haven't been part of a Christian family and today you want to say, I'm coming home. I'm done with this foreign country of starving and brokenness. Um, Let me know. Tell me this morning or send me an email. I'd love to know if you're in that place and I will help walk you to your father if you you need help. Um, But uh, the the table is here. There's two more songs. We have a bit of space left this morning to come into the presence of God. The, um, the reality is that he's here like a, a good father ready to embrace us. So we set the table, and the table uh, is open to everyone here. <laughs>